Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at zatarans.com. Our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Waste not, want not. That's an old piece of wisdom that's never been more true than it is today. Americans throw away shocking amounts of perfectly good food every single day. Frankly, you may as well just throw the money straight into the garbage. But who wants to do that? Not Suzanne DePlantis of Make Over My Leftover. Her blog and Instagram accounts of the same name are helping people waste less and spend less. We sit down with Suzanne to hear some of her inspirational ideas. And then we visit with Lindsay Jean Hard, whose new book, is cooking with scraps. She's got edible ideas for things we've all thrown away our entire lives. Like the water you drain from a can of beans? Wait until you hear this one. And Michael Hurwitz of New York's Green Market joins us with the tale of his inspirational success turning garbage into compost in the Big Apple. Don't take out the garbage, at least not until you hear this week's episode of Louisiana Eats. Hi, I'm Suzanne Duplantis with Makeover My Leftover. I love using leftovers as startovers to create new meals. The problems with food waste are so often spoken about in global terms that it's easy to forget they begin with our own refrigerators. Studies have found that the average American tosses out about a pound of food each day. <laughs> How much did that cost you in 2018? Baton Rouge-based food industry veteran Suzanne DePlantis has made it her mission to help families reduce food waste and save money. Her blog, Make Over My Leftover, gives readers countless ideas on how to transform yesterday's scraps into today's delicious meals. Suzanne joined us in the Louisiana Eats studio to discuss her passion project, which has its roots in her grandmother's philosophy about leftovers. I grew up as a, a little girl on the West Bank of New Orleans, and my favorite spot was on the step stool in my Mimos kitchen. And she was the leftover queen. If there was leftovers from breakfast, it went into lunch, and lunch went into dinner. So she taught me the value and appreciation of food. So that was always with me. And then I had a career in the restaurant industry for 22 years. And seeing my fair share of food waste from the back of the house to the front of the house with the customer's refusal to take to-go boxes 
boxes. And I would ask, would you like a to-go box, say, for the rest of your French fries? And I would get responses like, they're not good cold, or I don't like leftovers. So I found myself grabbing the box anyway and writing a little tip on the top of the box saying, if you bring these French fries home, you could have potato pancakes in the morning or different options like that. And I found more people started to take home their to-go boxes. So I was inspired by that. Is that really sort of the place where you started to think of it career-wise? Not at all. I love the restaurant industry. It was my heart and soul. And tragically, I suffered a stroke. So I had to get out of the restaurant industry. And for the first year through my um, rehabilitation, part of it, I had to sit and I cut a green bell pepper. And it took me an hour to cut that green bell pepper. So that's a lot of time to look at that bell pepper on the inside of it and the seeds and think about the farmers growing that pepper and the value of food. So not being in the restaurant industry, I was pretty much going stir crazy. What can I do? What can I do? And my husband, who's a minister, reminded me, you know, when you worked at the restaurant, food waste bothers you. You'd come home and complain about the bags of trash being drugged to the dumpster, knowing that 90% of it was food. He said, why don't you do something with that? And it just so happened, one of those meant to be things, within a month, I heard the statistic that an average family of four wastes up to $2,200 a year. I started thinking that's a college fund started. That's a vacation that maybe they didn't know they could take. So I started my blog, Make Over My Leftover, with just the hopes of helping one family save food. How did it grow from there? It really, it took off uh, tremendously within the first month. I got a call for a segment called Money Mondays about saving money. And that did, you know, prompt me on my journey, so to speak. But at the beginning, I didn't have recipes on my blog. It was a cooking blog with no recipes. Because I thought if people could just take their leftovers, I'll give them an idea of what to do. But I find that people want to have that initial recipe. How do you make a recipe without knowing for sure what the leftovers might be, what they might taste like. How do you figure that out? My mind never stops thinking with food. I think about it uh, all the time. And my motto is to cook is to create. You know, cooking, it's an art form. And that's what how I like people to look at it. In fact, on my blog, I have a section called Put your to cook is to create thinking cap on. And so when I do a recipe there, I may say if you have a half a cup of leftover gumbo, one of my favorite leftovers is gumbo sloppy joes. And all it takes is uh, ground meat, one pound of ground meat. I add chopped tomatoes to it. And then you're going to add your cup of leftover gumbo in there and let it saute down with the meat and the tomatoes. And then put it on, I like to fill rolls with it, French rolls with it. And it's a gumbo sloppy joe. But I also will give you options on there. Well, if you don't have any gumbo, do you have shrimp bisque, for instance? Or do you have chowder? What do you have? Let's look at that. And as far as creating recipes from leftovers, the biggest thing I tell people is to break down that leftover. What is it? For instance, spaghetti and meatballs. Break it down. It's tomatoes. Well, how would you use tomatoes? Can you use that leftover spaghetti like that? Take, for instance, fruitcake. Uh, I get a lot of requests of that <laughs> during the Christmas holidays. Either You either love it or hate it. I say not to waste it. And it's through questions like that. I came up with actually um, fruitcake granola. So you think fruitcake is nuts, spices, it's dried fruits. What's in granola? All of the above. You have figured out how to take leftovers and stretch them back from a leftover serving and a half or something until 
maybe a family for four. Right. It's, if it's, take spaghetti and meatballs, for instance. You have enough for one person. Well, that's not going to feed your family. But let's take those spaghetti. Let's add a little bit of ricotta cheese to it. Let's go buy some pie crust. And let's make calzones. Now we have enough with that little bit of spaghetti and meatballs. I was only going to feed one. Under $5, we have enough now to feed that family of four with that cup. So it's definitely stretching the budget. And if you think about the price of food nowadays, everybody wants to to stretch the budget. It's shocking. You know, I remember back, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I would wait for ground beef to go on sale at 99 cents a pound. Now it's kind of a deal if you can find it for $3 a Absolutely. Absolutely. So we need to get the most out of our meals. And I like to challenge people to one-week challenge. If you compost, that's awesome. But if not, for the one-week challenge, all the food that you do not eat that would be thrown away, and that includes when you go to lunch and you're spending $18 on a salad, how much are you leaving on that plate? How much money? But save all that food in one bag for a week and then look at that bag How much food did you waste in the week? It's a visual reminder for us because I think food waste is out of sight, out of mind, and people don't like to think about it, and they don't have to think about it because it's not in their face. But when you're forced for a week to stare at that bag of food, hopefully you'll be thinking a little bit different about it. Think about the farmers, especially here in Louisiana. We know with some of the hardships that our farmers here have had. And look at the produce when you buy the produce. say that this world of overabundance is slowly killing our world. Because when we go buy produce, we have all this beautiful produce at the stores that are overflowing. We bring it home, and then life gets in the way. We have plans and good intentions to cook, and then we have a late meeting or the children have practice, and it gets forgotten and it gets lost. And so we easily toss it away because we know that we can go to the store the next day and get some more. But what happens if you couldn't? So what should people do about this problem of everything in the refrigerator that's aging? I have a few easy tips. One is to run your kitchen just like you would a restaurant kitchen as far as inventories. Keep an inventory sheet. uh, Keep one for your refrigerator, your pantry, and your freezer. I have one on the front of my freezer done by shelf. So I'm actually saving energy because I don't have to open up the freezer and stare at it and wonder what's in there. I know at a glance what I have. And as far as the pantry, first in, first out rule, for instance, um, you know, when you go to the store, make sure everything is rotated. And then also a simple thing is the plate size. The plate sizes have increased so much over the years. And that was something personally that we did in our household was I had these big, beautiful plates that I felt the need for dinner to fill everything up when we had dinner parties and that. And then, of course, people can't eat that much. So just reducing plate size made a difference uh, in our household. And we talked freezer inventory. Make your freezer your BFF because your freezer is there, fresh herbs, everything you have leftover stock can go in the freezer. And then the important thing is to understand the date labels. Food gets prematurely thrown out due to the date labeling. And so a lot of people think, oh, this is expired, when it's not an expiration date. It's a best-by date or a sell-by date. Did you know that there's only one product required by the FDA to have an expiration date? No. Infant formula. We wouldn't have beautiful salvage stores in the city of New Orleans and cities around the state if it was expired food. It's perfectly good food. It's more about the quality 
Those dates are put on there if you have a bag of pork rinds, for instance. The date would be on there, for instance, today. That's guaranteeing you that by today, that's going to be the utmost freshest pork rind, crispiest you can ever have. That doesn't mean tomorrow it's not any good. It doesn't mean the week later it's not any good. And there's some staple items that you should have in your pantry at all times and in your freezer. Always have a protein in your freezer. A bag of frozen shrimp is always in my freezer for a quick go-to. But have your staples in Louisiana. We love our beans. We love our rice, pasta, and have just those items that you know you can throw together really quick. If you have a flour tortillas, quesadillas are super easy for leftovers that you may have. So you have been at this for how long? (laughs) It will be going on five years. And about how many recipes have you created for people to make their leftovers? You know, that's it's surprising. I'm working on my first cookbook, and I had no idea. I had so many recipes that I did because I, I never wrote my recipes down. I just cooked. I cooked from the heart, and that's what I do. And writing them down, really keeping a tally, oh, my goodness, I, I needed 100 for my cookbook, and I well easily are up into probably about the 400 oh mark my goodness. on leftovers. So if you have a leftover question, I always tell my readers, you can message me or contact me saying, oh, help me, help me. I have a cup of this left what to do with it. Nobody wants to eat it anymore in my house. And I'm more than happy to offer some advice. Well, I hope we've got everybody at home inspired to save money, save food, save the world. Just one apple core at a time, maybe. You got that right. And that apple core (laughs) makes a great tea. It also makes a great glaze, too. So don't be tossing out the apple core. (laughs) Thank you, Suzanne. It was such a pleasure to meet you. A dream come true. Thank you, Poppy. Suzanne DePlantis of Makeover My Leftover. Coming up next, we continue to take a hard look at how to get the most out of our culinary throwaways. Lindsay Jean Hard author of Cooking with Scraps joins us when Louisiana Eats returns in a moment. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Brennan's Restaurant, home of the original breakfast at Brennan's and flaming Bananas Foster with modern Creole cooking by three-time James Beard Award finalist Slade Rushing. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and private events at 417 Royal Street in the French Quarter.
My name is Lindsay Jean Hard. I'm the author of Cooking with Scraps. Turn your peels, cores, rinds, and stems into delicious meals. Energized by her membership in a Japanese CSA, that's community-supported agricultural farm, Lindsay Jean Hard began to wonder how she would make use of all the fresh produce she was receiving, especially the scraps. Her curiosity about uses for throwaways, like peels, cores, and rinds, inspired her to search for recipes and experiment on her own. In her book, Cooking with Scraps, Lindsay Jean shares her discoveries, presenting a reference guide for zero-waste cooking. When we spoke by phone, I began by asking her how she became so partial to underutilized produce parts. Well, it was kind of a roundabout journey. I really got more into food and writing when my husband and I were living in Japan for a couple of years. And he and I joined a CSA there for the first time ever. And so that meant that we were getting a box every week of produce that had been grown by local farmers. And, you know, in addition to it being a new exploration for me of fruits and vegetables that I'd never seen or cooked with before, it was like a really poignant moment for me of connecting with where my food was coming from because I was thinking more about the farmers that were growing this nearby and I really wanted to respect and honor the food and use all of what I was getting. And then eventually, um, after coming back and helping friends create a startup that was all about connecting to where your food was coming from, I started working for food52.com, a food and lifestyle website. And I wore a number of different hats there as well, but I wrote um, a couple of different columns, and one of them was cooking with scraps. And I would search through the recipe archives because that's a community-built website where anyone can upload uh, recipes. And I would look for ones where community members had made smart use of underutilized produce parts and other odds and ends. And I would feature them. And I just, I learned so much in that process that then I wanted to share that knowledge with a broader audience. I loved your writing. I'm really a big fan. And you mention your time in Japan in the book. And The Japanese have their own very interesting concept of waste, not want not, don't they? Yeah, they do. It's a couple of different Japanese phrases that really stuck with me and helped motivate this book. But the one that you're referring to is motenai. And in some ways, it's not all that different from waste, not want not. But their version manages to capture like not only the shame and wasting the precious resource, but it also holds on to the gratitude for what a gift that was in the first place, whether it's food or something else entirely. It was so inspirational to me to read really one of your motivations is to change the food system from your own kitchen. You know, sometimes this problem seems bigger than all of us, but to get it down to your own home kitchen Because 40% of U.S. food goes uneaten. How can that be? I know. I mean, it's just a really staggering number. And, you know, it really does start in our own kitchens. There's a lot that we all can be doing, and that really does make a difference when it's collective action with all of us coming together. What are some of your best recommendations for people who want to change the food system from their kitchen? I recommend 
not getting overwhelmed and just starting small because it is true once you think about that and realize how big the problem is, it's easy to get overwhelmed. But that's not going to help anyone if we're overwhelmed and just, you know, don't bother cooking with them to begin with. So if you just choose like one scrap or two scraps that you haven't been using to start cooking with, whether it's stale bread or broccoli stems or corn cobs, and if you start putting those to use and work them into your repertoire and really get comfortable, then just keep adding in more as you go and you'll get more and more comfortable and they'll just become more like any other ingredient and you won't start to see them as scraps anymore. Well, I don't think a lot of people have any great ideas about what to do with apple and pear peels or or, or cores. Um, what are some of the things that you recommend people do? Well, peels are a really fun one. I like to make flavored salts and sugars with them. Um, so you can dehydrate those peels like tomato peels, pear peels, and plum peels just in the lowest setting on your oven. Or of course, if you have a food dehydrator, that works too. And then I'm just combining them in a food processor with salt or sugar. And you end up with these really flavorful salts and sugars that are have lovely colors too. And they just add a lot of visual interest and flavor to things that you're making. Your book absolutely, if I can say so, really kind of bent my brain. How in the world did you ever come to think a banana peel should go in a cake? <laughs> well, I don't know when it was that I first learned that they're edible, but that was really a mind-blowing thing to me, too. I had had no idea and, you know, had never thought of that. And I think that's a lot of people's feelings. We just don't realize at all that they're edible. And so my first thought once I realized that was I should make banana bread that doesn't have any bananas in it. I don't know about you, but I have had trouble finding my one perfect banana bread recipe. Like I find one and I'm like, oh, it should be a little more this, a little more that. And so I didn't have a good starting place. But my grandmother has made this banana cake for all of my life. It's my favorite banana cake recipe. And so I thought that that would be a great starting point for me to try using banana peels in a cake. And it's delicious. It's moist. It has a great texture. And you'd never know there's no bananas in it at all. It's just the peels. How do you process the peels to get them edible? Because they're so fibrous. Yeah, well, so for the cookbook, I have you chop them up and cook them a little bit in water to soften them and then blend that all together. In the past couple of months, I've continued experimenting with this. And I found that you can also freeze the bananas whole and then peel them. And the peels soften a lot from going through that freezing and thawing. And so it makes them even easier to work with. So that's another option too. Okay. True confession. We drink a lot of coffee down here in New Orleans. And yes, I have seen a pork loin rubbed in coffee grinds to be roasted. But I haven't really seen a lot of recipes that include coffee grinds, much less used coffee grinds. Now, what's up with that? Yeah, used coffee grounds still contain so much of that coffee flavor. There are just a number of ways that you can be putting them to good use. In the book, I'm using them in a nut butter because you'll get that coffee flavor, but you also get um, a great little crunchy texture in the nut butter. 
And then on Food 52, you can also find a recipe for a French silk pie where I've used those grounds a couple of different ways. Um, I'm using them to infuse cream to make a whipped cream topping for the pie. And then I'm also using them straight up in the crust of the pie along with some crushed chocolate cookies. So it's a nice chocolate coffee blend of flavors. We are big bean eaters down here. You know, it's red beans and rice every Monday. And in your book, I discover an ingredient I've never even known of before. Tell me about that magical ingredient you discovered. It is a magical ingredient. So you're talking about aquafaba, and that's the name for the cooking liquid from beans and other legumes. And you can definitely use that liquid from um, soaking and cooking your own dried beans. Um, If you haven't worked with aquafaba before, though, I would recommend starting with the liquid from canned beans. Why? It's just sometimes it can be a little bit of a tricky ingredient, and I found it more consistently works and whips up for you if you're using the liquid from canned beans. And that's what's fun about this ingredient. It, It whips up just like egg whites do. And so you can use it a lot of the same ways that you use egg whites. So in the cookbook, I'm using them to make brownies, and I'm also using them to make a mayonnaise. So it, it can go sweet or savory. This is really blowing my mind. Yeah, it's really fun. Um, it does taste slightly beany, so you could use it like straight up to make meringues, like something similar to, you know, an egg white based meringue. Um, In that case, you would probably want to be adding flavor like cocoa powder or matcha powder along with sugar to help mask that beanie flavor a little bit. But when you're using it like in place of eggs, like in the brownies, for example, that beanie flavor does not come through. Now, is there anything that you've ever said, oh my goodness, this is relegated to the garbage? (laughs) Well, I've been on a mission. There's a recipe on Food 52 for broccoli stalks that treat them sort of like bones, and it's cooking to them them to the point where you're scooping out the inside like marrow from a bone. And I really wanted to be able to do that with broccoli, with Brussels sprout stalks, but those are just so tough and woody and fibrous that I have yet to be able to use the Brussels sprout stock. But someone suggested trying a pressure cooker, so that might be what it takes to uh, figure out how to use that one. Lindsay Jean, I love your book, and I hope everybody checks out your work on Food 52 and starts turning all of their normally compostable bits and pieces into yummy, yummy, edible things. I'm going to go home tonight and um, finish out the last of that jar of strawberry preserves with some balsamic vinegar. That sounds like a delicious salad dressing. Oh, perfect. I hope you enjoy it, and thank you so much for having me. That was Lindsay Jean Hard, author of Cooking with Scraps. Turn your peels, cores, rinds, and stems into delicious meals. So if you find someone who gives you all of the love, take it to your hot dome, let it stray. Oh, I think for certain you will surely be a hurting if you throw it all away. If you throw it all away. 
According to the USDA, Americans waste over 373 million pounds of food every day. In New York City, roughly a third of this waste stream is organic material that can be composted. The process of breaking down garbage and returning it back into the environment? Composting is not a new concept to the Big Apple, but over the past 10 years, it's become even easier for residents to recycle. Michael Hurwitz is the director of The Green Market, a program of Grow NYC that operates 53 farmers markets throughout the five boroughs of New York City. He explained to us how groups of highly motivated citizens have been working to make composting a regular part of life in New York. My name is Michael Hurwitz. I am the Green Market Director at Grow NYC in New York City. I became the director of Green Market 11 and a half years ago, and I started on the same day that a sister program was started dedicated to teaching New Yorkers how to recycle. So I had a partner named David Hurd, who is the director of that, that program, um, and we began really looking at how our markets could be centers of sustainability. There were two markets that we had, one which was Union Square, where there was another nonprofit called the Lower East Side Ecology Center, Christina Datz Romero, who had been working on recycling issues in New York City for the last 40 years, week in, week out, collecting food scraps at Union Square and going to processing it on her site along the East River in Manhattan. And that was a funded nonprofit. And then at our Fort Green Market in Brooklyn, there were these three community gardeners that would set up every Saturday and ask for food scraps that they could take back to their community garden. And when I got there, I approached them and I said, how can we help? And they said, we need $500 to build a trike so that we can actually bike this stuff back to our gardens. So we wrote them a check and said, great. And that began to take off. So the trike was 2008, and as that grew, they said to me and to David, we've exceeded our capacity. This actually needs to be real now. It's volunteer-based. We're losing the energy of some of our volunteers. So what can you do to help us? And we got a grant from then Speaker of City Council, Christine Quinn, who gave us a grant for us to begin collecting food scraps renting our own trucks, hiring our own staff to stand on the street corner and collect food scraps at four individual markets, and then collect them each day, and then we would deliver them to three community gardens in Brooklyn. And now we're at 2011. You have to be willing to fail and to struggle if you're going to get to the next level. And so we do that all the time. On the same week, we launched our Fresh Bodega initiative, which failed miserably, but whose lessons we learned, so we started our own distribution arm from the lessons that we learned from that project, and we started our compost collection at Market. So we drove around, starting at four markets, collecting in garbage bags, with a little bit of money, trying to figure it out, and what we demonstrated pretty quickly is that New Yorkers will freeze 
their food scraps or raise fruit flies on their windowsills like I do. And we will collect our food scraps and bring them to markets. We'll bring it on the subway. We'll bring it by foot. We'll bring it by car, by bike, you name it. Give us the opportunity and this is what we want to do. So we began to expand to more and more markets. People would actually pay us. They would give us volunteer suggested donations, like hundreds and hundreds of dollars each week for the privilege of them being able to drop off their compost. One of the things that we did with compost is we tried to sell finished product. Again, failed miserably. The logistics, the staffing, the costs, it, it was essentially impossible to do it effectively and efficiently. At Green Market and at Grow NYC, fortunately we have an ED that allows us to fail and that isn't afraid to a funder to say, we didn't quite hit these targets, but this is what we learned and this is what we're gonna implement. So after several years of expanding this program to more and more markets, we finally hit about 22 markets. The Department of Sanitation, as only they can in New York City, they said, that's our garbage, that's not your garbage. So they began to fund their employees and their trucks collecting from our markets each week. So our staff still picks up from, I think, 12 individual markets, and sanitation is picking up from another 30. Most of this is going to community compost sites, process it, and then it gets reintroduced to city parks, community gardens throughout the five boroughs. It has led to the city having a goal of 8 million New Yorkers having either in their own buildings or within like a quarter mile distance from their homes, organic food collection. It is affirmation that farmers markets are where you, we are test sites, we are community builders, we are pure example, you know, the age old cliche of never underestimate the power of a group of highly motivated individual citizens, right? Because literally what this group of three community composters demonstrated each week is coming to their community town square, which was the Fort Green Green Market, they were able to demonstrate that they could motivate their neighbors to divert, I think 40% of our waste stream is organic matter, divert what is otherwise gorgeous black gold that can be turned into soil, that can then help grow foods in our communities and get more New Yorkers engaged in community gardening, and then demonstrate to, like this was the pilot that demonstrated to the city of, of what we can do. So I'm incredibly proud. Um, I love the fact that our sister program and our organization, that we are more than just about running farmers markets per se, and that we are associated with a group of individuals that are spending, you know, working tirelessly to train all of our neighbors and all of our communities why this matters, how to do it, and then making it possible to do it. That was Michael Hurwitz, Green Market Director at Grow NYC in New York City. Oh, I love trash. Anything dirty or dingy or dusty. Anything ragged or rotten 
What else can you do with a peach pit besides throw it away? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I love, I love, I love trash. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarans. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcasts yet? We just published our latest, a Mardi Gras visit with children's author and songstress Johnette Downing. So get the kids, break out the king cake, and visit poppytooker.com to listen. While there, you can also subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a delicious bite. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What else can you do with a peach pit besides throw it away? Actually, all stone fruit pits can be cracked, yielding a tiny kernel with a very strong almond flavor. In fact, some brands of amaretto are made with them. Here's the crazy thing, though. They actually contain a small amount of cyanide, and eating a small handful could give you a stomachache or worse. So what does Lindsay Jean Hard recommend? She recommends using Alice Waters' method of roasting the kernels for a brief time, which eliminates the harmful substance. Then, using vodka and simple syrup, she crafts her own version of what the French call creme de noyau. You see, the French even have a special name for those small stone fruit kernels. They call them noyau. So the next time you make a fresh peach pie, get cracking on those pits. You'll find Lindsay Jean's recipe on our website at poppytooker.com. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. My name is Elliot Sherman, and I'm an environmental scientist. For Elliot Sherman, water is an issue that flows through all areas of our lives. He works for the Environmental Protection Agency, a job that brought him to New Orleans to spread the word about conservation. 
Here in Louisiana, we know quite well that living with water can be a constant struggle. Elsewhere, Americans are dealing with the opposite problem, experiencing annual droughts and wildfires that cause other serious hardships. Elliot stopped by our studio during his visit, and I asked him to share his view on water conservation and its connection to the food and beverage industry. It's an integral part of society, part of our economy, um, and uh, a lot of people don't, don't think about it, you know, when they you know, wash their clothes, brush their teeth, flush the toilet, um, where that water's coming from, uh, where that water goes, um, how much it costs to get it to you clean, um, what it costs to treat it afterwards. Um, And it's a scarce resource in a lot of parts of the country, um, as we see in the news uh, more and more lately. So it's something that's worth bringing more to the forefront, discussing, uh, figuring out ways um, that we can conserve um, new technologies to reuse water, things like that. And it's not just in the U.S., Water is an enormous issue on the entire planet, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I actually uh, did my graduate work in the Middle East, um, where water's been a huge problem uh, for many years. So they've been on the forefront of uh, new technologies, treating saline water, desalinating ocean water to make drinking water. Um, so it's, it's a big issue everywhere, obviously. A lot of places in Africa, the developing world, um, don't have any. Um, you know, they're digging wells in their backyard. So yeah, it's it's a big issue everywhere that uh, finally in the U.S., um, you know, we're starting to see that we, you know, we don't really have that much either. So what are some of the desperate measures that you see people taking to get potable water? Uh, yeah, it's, it's desperate in a lot of places in the world. You know, um, sub-Saharan Africa is a great example, but uh, women will walk hours a day just to, to get one barrel of water um, to bring to their families, and that's time that they could be spending in school, um, getting education, and, you know, traditionally in a lot of societies in Africa, it's the women who would get the water for their families. Um, so, you know, they're having to walk further and further. Um, local wells that aren't um, dug deep enough are drying up, um, and so they're needing to dig more wells, and that can affect the groundwater. Um, and with contamination, you know, you might have used to, you know, had a water source near your house that's no longer clean. Um, so yeah, internationally, I mean, those are some of the problems in the developing world. Um, luckily there's some NGOs, um, trying to help, you know, with those wells and, and, and educate and, um, you know, provide the opportunity for these women to not have to walk so far and then, you know, that kind of spirals. But that's certainly one. I mentioned the Middle East earlier, but even with developed societies, um, in the Middle East, um, they, they don't have water resources other than to desalinate from the ocean. And that's very expensive. It takes a lot of energy currently. So it's not quite a solution just yet. When we look at the industry that our Louisiana Eats listeners are most likely involved in, which is the hospitality industry, whether it's the restaurant or the bar, what are some measures that people should be considering? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And bars and restaurants have this great opportunity to be a a source of education for their patrons. And, um, you know, if you can... Um, as a bar owner or a restaurant owner, you know, take a look at what you're doing, how you're running your operation and say, oh, this, you know, I could get this lower flow toilet and I could save, you know, 20, 30% of my water use, or I could train my bartender a little bit differently and use a little bit less ice on every single drink I make. Um, you know, and over the course of a night and a week and a month, um, in a year that can save thousands of gallons. Um, you know, that, that can have a big impact. And if your patrons see that, then maybe they go home and think, oh, maybe I'll turn off the, the faucet when I'm brushing my teeth. Or, you know, I won't run the dishwasher when it's half full. Um, I think it can kind of spread from there. So, 
Let's talk about water reuse. You know, most of us use water and it just washes down the drain. What are your thoughts about how we can conserve through reuse? Well, water reuse is something I'm, I'm pretty passionate about. I studied it and very interested in it. I think it's a great solution. Um, as you mentioned, you know, water goes down the drain. We don't really know what happens. So traditionally, that would be treated, you know, at your treatment plant um, to a clean enough degree that it could be put back into your river. Um, and then to make drinking water, it would have to be taken out again, treated again. And that's all, you know, when you think about it holistically, it's energy, it's time, it's, um, you know, burning coal to make power, things like that. But with reuse, you can kind of look at it uh, more as a resource. So um, you can take that water, um, treat it to such a degree um, that you can use it for irrigating. You can use it in uh, public's, um, you know, sprinklers or fountains, things like that. So instead of having to dump it back into a stream, you can use it one more time, essentially. Um, another example would be like a gray water system. We call it gray water basically any water that's not sewage. So within your household, um, you could use that water from your washing machine to uh, flush your toilets. That can add up to a huge amount of water that you don't need to be using um, fresh that uh, you can use one more time. And so it's an energy savings, it's a resource savings. And in places like out, out west where they're uh, you know dealing with drought and constrained resources, it really adds up. So you know, there's places that are reusing um, 80, 90% of their water in the world currently. So we're, we're getting there here as well. But. That's very ambitious. I, you know, here in Louisiana, New Orleans, we're seven feet under sea level. I, I don't really see anybody going to the gray water level. And uh, I don't know how you get that message to those people. Yeah, I think it's slow to catch on sometimes. I know out west, it was something that there was no other option really when droughts started to happen more frequently. Um, when you're in an area like down here in Louisiana, where you're right on the water, or in the Great Lakes, you don't necessarily think about it. But when you when you look at water as as a you know as a resource that takes energy as well, um, and everything that's included in that, then you can start to see that no matter how much water is around your city, it's still worthwhile to um, take advantage of some of implementing resource um, measures and infrastructure things like that. How can people look for this guidance? Where can they find the word on what they can do to help this problem? Sure. Well, uh, you know, a great place to start is, is with your city. Um, you know, reach out, whatever phone number's on your, your water bill. Give them a call. Go online. It's, it's easy to Google, you know, what city you're living in in the water. And, and they'll have probably resources of their own. Um, there's great um, federal uh, programs out there as well. So um, just as an example, WaterSense is a federal program that certifies um, appliances that are um, low flow or really efficient. So you can go and get a list of those and see... Um, you know, what's what's uh, a better product to use, how much it saves. Um, and, and again, if you're a, a restaurant or a bar, that, that really does affect your bottom line. Um, so, you know, that's one thing that we're doing is, is providing those resources that um, might not be uh, familiar to people um, if they reach out. And if you're doing it on your own, start locally and, and go from there. Um, there's also a lot more um, consulting happening now in the bar and restaurant industry. Um, so there's bartenders that, that are, um, you know, aware of this and, and concerned about it. So they're talking to their fellow bartenders and, you know, some of them have came and, uh, discussed with me and I'm consulting with them. It's kind of spiraling and, and hopefully that, that chatter will, will spread. Um, and so, you know, then when a patron comes into a bar that might not be doing any conservation and says, what are you doing, um, to save water or energy, uh, they can then turn to, you know, their fellow bartenders or look online and, and find out what they can do. 
Well, I'm I'm really thrilled to have had this opportunity to talk with you on Louisiana Eats. And sometimes it's Louisiana Eats and drinks. And today it's we'll drink some water. So let's drink to that. Cheers. Thank you, Elliot. Thanks so much. That was Elliot Sherman, water scientist at the EPA. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you'll find our full broadcasts, along with our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting right from your computer or smartphone. Louisiana Eats is also available from iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau. And from Tableau, brunch and dinner daily with outdoor balcony dining overlooking Jackson Square. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Molladu. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.